Welcome everyone to tonight's event, organised on behalf of uh, British Government at LSE and the Government Department. Our speaker tonight is one of the leading chroniclers of Prime Ministerial Government, contemporary British history and a leading educationalist. He's currently Headmaster of Wellington College, as well-known broadcaster and writer on education. However, for our purposes, his work on contemporary British political history is the most relevant. Anthony Selden has chronicled the political contributions of every Prime Minister since Margaret Thatcher in books such as The Thatcher Effect, followed by The Major Effect, and his three major books on Tony Blair. Blair, Blair's Britain, and Blair Unbound. He's gained access to those at the heart of New Labour government and become one of the more measured and impartial commentators on um, the last government and uh, politics of the last decade and a half. Selden has also written more widely on 20th century British political history and is author of, by my count, something like 25 books, but perhaps you'll correct me if that's too low a figure. With Peter Hennessy, he founded the Institute for Contemporary British History and has become a leading contemporary commentator on British politics since 1945. Tonight, Dr. Selden will speak on the topic of uh, his forthcoming book and uh, his forthcoming biography on, on Gordon Brown and um, aspects of the, the writing of this kind of book. Um, a little bit of our claim on having him here. Anthony completed his PhD at LSE. Um, having gained an MA in PPE from somewhere else less interesting. Um, and it, for us, it's a great pleasure to welcome him back to the LSE tonight to give his lecture on Brown at 10. So, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Anthony Sell. Well, thanks, thanks very much, uh, Paul, and thank you very much, everyone, for coming tonight. And uh, welcome, and I, I hope you get something uh, from this. It's a different kind of lecture to the one I normally give. When I normally speak, I normally uh, don't use notes. I, I'm talking about a subject which I know uh, very well. And um, so I just uh, look at the audience and I think, what do they want to know about tonight? I'm talking about a subject I don't know very well, and I'm expecting to be the person who learns the most uh, tonight, and I'm going to learn the most from uh, interacting with you and reflecting. So let me just put that into context. It's taken, I wrote 200,000 words in eight weeks on uh, Gordon Brown. And that was quite a lot of work, and I did that with a, an incredible team of people, two of whom are in the audience uh, tonight. I've always worked with teams of uh, very uh, bright people, partly because their brightness compensates for my very lack of that, and partly because I enjoy their company. And uh, the way that I work is to, is to do the work, do the writing, and then to stand back and think and reflect. And Gordon Brown is truly an interesting man. I mean, anybody who, who thinks that he's not, and um, my kind of beef with the Andrew Rawnsley book is it makes him out to be pretty two-dimensional. Uh, I don't think he is. I think he's one of the most extraordinarily interesting and actually worthwhile uh, incumbents of the office of Prime Minister in the last uh, uh, 50 or more years. 
uh, a man deeply complex but not impenetrable. So um, let me just give you a bit of background. So I'm going to read this out. I'm really uncomfortable actually reading. I don't like reading um, talks, but I'm, I'm going to tonight because these are really the hot off the press reflections on those 200,000 uh, words uh, about him. This is our first attempt tonight. Uh, to try and, and bring this together and try to make sense of the premiership. It's not, by the way, a biography because I put it in the acknowledgments of Brown, uh, of Blair Unbound, which is the second volume about Blair, that if I did another biography, wrote another biography, my, my wife would divorce me. And I really didn't want that because, you know, I love her. Uh, uh, and so the way I round that was to say, okay, it's not a biography of Brown. Uh, but this is just a study of him at number 10. And by the way, I don't think we need another biography of Gordon Brown. I mean, there, there, are, there are lots. Uh, so uh, Brown at 10 is the fourth and final volume uh, on British Prime Ministers I've written spanning uh, 20 years, from John Major moving into number 10 in November 1990 to Gordon Brown leaving it in May 2010. Uh, the first book, Major, published in 1997, argued that once the deafening scorn about him and his premiership died away, one would be left uh, with the fact that Major's judgments on policy, notably on the economy, on Europe and on Northern Ireland, were essentially sound, especially, especially given the poor hand he was dealt with, uh, he was dealt in November 1990. A core argument of all four books is that one can only meaningfully judge a Prime Minister, and this is why that rather silly chart of um, uh, uh, organised by a great man, Kevin Theakston at Leeds, uh, of who are the best, who are the worst Prime Ministers, is fundamentally silly because it takes no account of the circumstances uh, the Prime Ministers had when they came to office. Is you can only meaningfully judge them if you look at the structure in which they came to power, favourable or unfavourable. I use a, 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 an analytical t technique that I developed in a book that I wrote with David Marquand in 1996 called The Ideas That Have Shaped Post-War Britain when we tried to plumb down into uh, the substructure of uh, British uh, political history and look at the ideas, what actually have been the governing ideas. And in that I was arguing that for premierships to be successful you need to have uh, the four ideas. There are uh, the individuals themselves, the ideas they have, the interests and the circumstances that they face. And to make a successful premiership, you need to have at least two of those positive and two benign. Uh, that was the uh, underpinning for all these four books. The second book was called Blair, Displaying Blair 2004. That described a man really extraordinary, you know, extraordinary. Uh, no early interest in ideas uh, or uh, politics. You could say it didn't change much. Uh, and un but under the influence of 20 uh, powerful individuals who I give a chapter to each in the book and 20 uh, life-changing events that they were like hammers these they sort of beat him into some kind of shape and the shape that they beat him into uh, these 20 in in very powerful individuals one Cherie obviously another God uh, and then 20 life-changing events uh, made him uh, the person uh, that uh, he uh, became one of the most effective, um, viscerally effective and ambitious leaders of the modern age, ambition outstripping 
his ability to see where the ambition was driving him. Uh, the price was that he came to number 10 in 1997 with no clear ideas of his own about what he wanted to do with power and no clear idea about how to use power. Uh, there was a contempt for history. Um, the result was that his first term until 2001 was largely barren of personal achievement. His greatest weakness, the book says, was his unwillingness to stand up to powerful men and pursue his own agenda against him. Powerful men being Gordon Brown, for example, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Rupert Murdoch. Volume 3 was Blair Unbound 2007, took the story from 2001 forwards, and shows how, in contrast to the pattern of most political leaders who sees their influence who has their influence diminishing the longer they remain in office, Blair became increasingly effective, in part because he succeeded in freeing himself of the influence of his nemesis, Gordon Brown. But by squandering the, his best years in power, the result was that his domestic agenda was only partially completed by 2007. Very unclear what Blairism means. Choice and diversity, sure, but barely implemented, whereas his desire to make a mark on the national and world stage led him into the folly of looking for something spectacular, and that was a uh, war in Iraq, which he failed and still fails, still fails to read correctly. So these uh, three prime ministers, John Major, Tony Blair, and now Gordon Brown and Brown at 10, which should be published... Um, at the end of November, uh, they're all troubled prime ministers, uh, all three of them, um, in four really uh, ways. Uh, they had uh, similar uh, factors they had to face up to. Uh, all tried to, all three tried to govern from the centre ground, and had more difficulty doing so with their own disaffected party members than they did from the official opposition. Two, secondly, each faced an overwhelming crisis which dominated the perception of their entire period in power, the ejection of Britain from the exchange rate mechanism in September 92 with Major, the Iraq war for Blair, and the banking and economic crisis with Brown. Third, all three premierships were diminished by the demands for the 24-hour news media, never underestimate that, but also by the way they chose to respond to it. And four, um, all three were essentially reactive. Major, you could say, had some cause for being reactive. He had no time to plan out uh, why he was uh, uh, wanting to be prime minister, though he did actually stand, so he, it's no one to blame but himself. But he scratched down some ideas when he came back from uh, Buckingham Palace on uh, the back of an envelope, actually. Um, isn't that interesting? And this was uh, the way we run our government, and these were his ideas uh, for uh, government. At least he managed to write them down. It's rather more than Tony Blair did. Uh, Blair had three years to prepare for power, but essentially got himself into this reactive mode whereby he was saying that uh, the press has slaughtered uh, Neil Kinnock and we have to therefore uh, ensure that we don't give hostages to fortune. What we have to do is make certain we win power and once we won power, then, then, then we will decide and say what it is we're going to do with power. But then when he got into power, it was just so nice, you know, in there in number 10. It was absolutely lovely. Diana died, very good, very obliging of her, great opportunity, and off he was. And actually, if I keep deviating from my script, we're only on page two here at the moment, I'm never going to get through this. Um, and um, he, you know, and then rather than actually coming in and saying what then what he was going to do, it was then all about, you know, winning the historic second term. So then the number 10 narrative came in 2001. Actually, 
actually what we were trying to do in 1997 onwards was build the foundations for what's really going to be new labor that's going to be what happens from after 2001 and then he was just kind of getting down to it he was fiddling with his cufflinks wasn't he uh, in the Grand Hotel uh, in Brighton on the 11th of November with a talking for his speech to the TUC and he was told that um, uh, the World Trade Center had had a plane into it relief he didn't have to go on to that he was then off saving the world and didn't he do well saving that so uh, so, 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 so reactive uh, Gordon Brown this is really puzzling Gordon Brown had not had not three days like uh, uh, John Major or three years like Tony Blair. He had 13 years to prepare for power. All these three premierships, I think, were essentially troubled. The methodology of all these books uh, is uh, inspired very much by uh, the thinking by, of the great Peter Hennessy, uh, uh, and it was a privilege to found the Institute, the Institute of Contemporary British History. We've done so much work with that body, particularly in the early years with LSC, um, and uh, it's an extraordinary body, uh, and Britain badly needed to have a really high-powered Institute of Contemporary uh, British History. The idea was to try and write dispassionately about the most recent period of history in an objective uh, way uh, that was evidence-driven, uh, and which used um, the benefit of interviews in, in a thoroughly historically professional way and then put back scripts to people. Uh, and and I, I always send my scripts back to the uh, actors uh, in history. I mean, think if we could do that for, for writing about the 1930s or the 1950s now. The people who, who make history, the vision was trying to bring together the people who made history with the, people, with the students of history. And um, that's what I try and do. Uh, on these, these four books have produced over four million words of um, of transcript, that's actually twice the uh, number uh, length, I think, of Alistair Campbell's, uh, and they're all going, not here sadly, but they're going to the Bodleian Library, um, and uh, over nearly 2,000 interviews uh, conducted uh, with people. And it's interesting, you know, because uh, over the 20 years, less and less has come to be written down. Uh, the idea that documents are king is, I think, uh, passé. Uh, with uh, cabinet uh, under Blair and Brown became increasingly a talking shop. Why you talk to the civil servants uh, who were taking the minutes, and they say that no one trusted uh, anyone to not to leak what happened. I remember Lord Butler, it's now in public domain, uh, said to me very early on that uh, no one talks because if they say anything worthwhile, you know it's going to be in the second or third edition of the Evening Standard that evening. Uh, so Cabinet became less and less uh, uh, a, an important forum, more and more uh, the key discussions taking place in bilateral uh, or trilateral, multilateral meetings in the den with Blair. Uh, Gordon Brown, the first email Prime Minister. Um, Gordon Brown, an intensive mobile user. Uh, many of those conversations on the mobile, even if routed through from Switch, who's the incomparable switchboard at number 10, uh, not in fact um, recorded. So um, interviews have a particularly important uh, 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 part to play. And I'm just wondering, you know, I, I'm trying to write this book from the perspective of 2040 uh, and wondering what is going to be said uh, then. And, and in 2040, we're going to know how various events will have uh, been played out. So three in particular, what will happen in Afghanistan, what will happen over the economy, what will happen over the unity of the Labour Party. How's it looking already um, in October 2010, some five months after the general election? Well, 
On Afghanistan, uh, neither Obama nor Cameron have found a clear, clear way forward in Afghanistan that suggests that Brown uh, obviously uh, missed something, uh, although I don't think that uh, we might come on to that, that Brown got Afghanistan at all well. Uh, he tried to manage it. He didn't lead it. He was on the back foot all the way, uh, partly because of extraordinary behavior from the British military, um, conniving with the British press uh, in, in an unprecedented way about which much more will appear in the future. Uh, on, on the issue of the fiscal crisis, did he really uh, mismanage that? Well, again, um, it would seem to me uh, that um, uh, th th there's no clear evidence that he substantially, his decisions then often in the face of opposition, not least from his cabinet, was substantially wrong. And over the Labour Party, he brought the Labour Party back from the brink. Um, yes, it was the second worst defeat in Labour's history since 1918, uh, but uh, he oversaw a party which has just had a uh, relatively peaceful leadership election and allowed a clear, hmm, kind of clear leader to emerge uh, from it. So, you know, where are we? We've had a, we've had a great explosion of books uh, on uh, Gordon Brown. This is the most written about premiership, um, uh, far more so than, than Blair's. Um, and uh, we've had uh, the third man. Uh, th these are just three really important and worthwhile books have appeared since um, in the last five months. First off, first off the blocks had written substantially um, uh, before the gen general election, written substantially by others, uh, is Peter Mandelson's third man. Uh, and that's a story about how Peter Mandelson essentially was right during that period. Uh, and I think, I, I think that, which is nice to know, um, I think he exaggerates his own importance personally, and I think he underplays his responsibility for the election defeat. In the end of the party, Andrew Rawnsley argues that Brown lacked the character, he lacked the judgment and temperament to be a successful prime minister, and really had just one achievement, saving the banking crisis. He believes that uh, Brown's manifest leadership deficiencies militated against New Labour renewing itself, and that that explains uh, the defeat of 2010. In Whatever It Takes, The Real Story of Gordon Brown and New Labour, Steve Richards, who's also produced a marvellous uh, series of programmes on Radio 4, sees Brown as doomed because he was neither able to free himself from the legacy and policies of Blair, on the one hand, nor was he able, on the other, to articulate his own clear left-of-centre left, left vision for Britain. So he was neither one thing nor the other. Um, Steve Richards sees Brown as a better human being than Rawnsley, but one who was essentially, is essentially impenetrable and contradictory. So Brown at 10, uh, which I have a co-author, uh, Guy Lodge, who is not here because he is uh, working on chapter seven tonight, uh, rewriting it, he was going to be. Uh, look who has the fun and look who does the work. Um, is, uh, it, it makes a very different kind of case really about the Gordon Brown Premiership. To begin with, uh, we don't believe uh, that it's at all a necessary given uh, that uh, Brown uh, was a failure uh, as a, a leading a failed prime minister with just one bare achievement. History ultimately judges prime ministers on how well they handle the major decisions that confront them. And on this, Brown compares not unfavorably with uh, several post-war prime ministers, uh, like Callaghan, prime minister, Labour prime minister from 76 to 79. Brown faced an overwhelming economic crisis. Arguably, he handled it with as much, if not more, dexterity and confidence than did his Labour predecessor. Brown, he, 
also handled maybe that major economic decision with more confidence than Major did, the ejection of Britain from the ERM. Uh, Blair's major uh, challenge was Iraq. Um, there's a very compelling case of saying that uh, Blair, sorry, Blair handled Iraq worse than uh, Brown handled the financial crisis. Uh, Brown's forceful leadership during the banking crisis of late 2008 was admired and emulated by governments around the world and at the London G20 on 2 April 2009. He was, uh, in the eyes of international leaders, the political leader uh, of the age. His subsequent handling of the recession, while undoubtedly controversial, ensured that Britain came through the downturn with minimal economic suffering, particularly amongst the most vulnerable. In Northern Ireland, uh, that uh, authors don't seem to mention, he showed skill and tenacity in bringing to conclusion the long process of devolution that had begun 12 years earlier with the Good Friday Agreement. The uh, achievement of Blair undoubtedly was considerable, but it did build on the achievement of the work of John Major, and uh, uh, Tony Blair had a great asset in Jonathan Powell that uh, Gordon Brown didn't have. As party leader, he survived three significant coups against his leadership, as much by uh, uh, luck as by judgment, and by the lack of a clear, agreed successor. I think that would have doomed him had there been an agreement around David Miliband, for example, or Jack Straw, or Alan Johnson. None, none of them satisfactory for different reasons. That showed a degree of uh, resilience. And did he do well in, in the uh, election? I think he did well in bringing the party back. Uh, from uh, problems. I think that, uh, interestingly, his principal passion, and no one suspected this, well, maybe all of you did, I didn't, uh, came as Prime Minister, not in the domestic realm, uh, but on the international stage, where he did achieve a level of respect uh, unimaginable here in Britain. Here, on the domestic stage, there was a distinctive Brownite agenda that had clarity and coherence, often lacking in domestic policy for Brown, the economic tsunami that swept the world in 2008 represented the first crisis of globalization, which he believed could only be tackled through strengthened global institutions and greater international cooperation. By definition, it was not a mission he was likely to execute alone, because, but he was one of the strongest proponents. Climate change was a clear example also of the need for coordinated global response, but despite investing enormous energy in it, particularly in the latter part of 2009, there, he failed to make the impact that he sought at Copenhagen in that December. There was also, behind everything Brown did, a clear social justice motivation. Rich nations cause climate change, but the effect of them hits the poorest hardest. Admirably, the world's poor were never far from Gordon Brown's mind. Talking to those people, no, I'm, I'm going to um, talking to people who, who who work with him, you know, they sometimes sort of get quite defensive and say, you know, we're not guilty of Stockholm, uh, uh, Stockholm syndrome, you know, where we sort of get you know grow to to, to, to love and even uh, you know admire the, the, the person who, who has imprisoned us. You know, the, 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 they, they say that the biggest factor that allowed them to 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 to, to stay loyal to Gordon Brown was his extraordinary passion and depth of his sincerity and goodness and imagination that he had for making a better world that was way ahead of Bush. That's a surprise, isn't it? Um, uh, but way ahead, uh, Bush cared about Africa. In fact, that was how they initially bonded, uh, talking over Africa. Uh, but, but compared to other leaders, uh, global leaders uh, who were his contemporaries, Brown was streets ahead in that. As Prime Minister, he continued to cha champion the cause of, developing, of development, uh, ensuring it did not disappear during the economic crisis. 
That the Conservative Party agreed to protect the development budget in the 2010 general election is testament to the way that he transformed the profile of the policy agenda on development. Brown, I think, also handled the withdrawal from Iraq sensitively, difficult challenge, with his left wing wanting him straight to come out, but wanting to maintain the special relationship, the special alliance with America, who were extraordinarily nervous about what uh, Brown would do, deeply nervous about him taking over. Blair played a, a most important part in both schooling Brown and how to play the Americans, but also in telling the Bush administration that they could do business with this man. Um, so in his performance in the domestic arena, that's obviously where we're going to make our judgments, aren't, isn't it? Uh, mostly about Brown. How well did he do? Well, with the exception of handling the recession, uh, the achievements are more limited. But he deserves credit for his health policy, which succeeded in restoring morale with the NHS, damaged during Blair's last years. He's been much inspired by the most successful GOAT appointee, government of all talents appointee, Aradazi, the brilliant uh, surgeon come uh, uh, minister, who came up with a series of imaginative policies on preventative and community health. Education, not a great success. He bequeathed control of that to Ed Balls, who for much of the time uh, had his eye on taking over from Alistair Darling, but who himself um, uh, produced some important work with the development of the children's agenda. Uh, but uh, the standards agenda in education was moved against, as, of course, was choice and diversity to the agony of uh, Andrew Adonis, who was uh, thrilled when he left that department to go to transport those divisions with balls uh, missed, uh, as were many, many things missed by the uh, media. I'm constantly surprised by how much the media misses in Britain. Uh, on law and order, he began by reversing the Blairite agenda on, for example, uh, ASBOs. Uh, only late in the day as the election approached did he seek to implement it. On constitutional reform, his early promises of, of change that much excited the uh, liberal left and the, uh, and the Guardian came to nothing uh, and he was scorned for it. He came up late with AV, if you remember, but by then it was much too late. Same can be said of his ideas on social care, very inspiring ideas on social care, uh, on high-speed rail that were the ideas substantially of Andrew Adonis, too late uh, to, 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 to uh, make much impact. The lack of that clear agenda, very surprising, really. Um, was there an agenda? Well, it came forward in 2009. The closest he got to it was uh, just before the summer of 2009. He came up with this idea, or the policy unit did, uh, working uh, back and forth with him, the idea of entitlements from public services. So uh, the public never warmed Brown. His international vision, uh, which I find inspiring, uh, never resonated uh, with a domestic uh, audience. Uh, his inability to communicate meant he failed consistently to communicate with the British public. Uh, he was one of the most disliked and unpopular prime ministers in recent history, much of it whipped up by really an extraordinarily hostile media, media which seemed at times to pride itself in underestimating and belittling his achievements. So I, uh, I think nevertheless he, uh, he, there, there was much more there that he achieved, as I tried to suggest. Uh, the question therefore is not uh, why did he achieve nothing, uh, but why did he not achieve more? And there are five reasons, and I'm going to go through uh, these uh, to, to these with you, see what you think about them. 
why he didn't achieve more. First of all is the inheritance. I mentioned the point about this inheritance. You know that um, you can't, you simply can't um, uh, judge uh, what Brown had to do from 2007 with what uh, Blair had to do uh, in 1997. The opportunities open them to them were so uh, different. I think any Labour leader who took over in June 2007, whether David Miliband or anybody else, uh, or indeed if Blair had stayed on, uh, would have had uh, significant difficulties. What were those difficulties? Well, the party was divided, not just by divisions between Blairites and Brownites, uh, but by the still livid wound of the war in Iraq. It was also confused about its direction and unsure how to refresh itself as a centre-left party, having spent 10 years in power. If there was, uh, audience, a clear direction for uh, Labour to have gone in June 2007, then Brown would have taken it there. Intellectually, the centre-left appeared exhausted. All those think tanks, all those think tanks, all those ideas, all those university departments, all those books, uh, what did that amount to? Uh, what did that amount to? Uh, almost absolutely nothing in terms of providing an agenda. Uh, extraordinary. Um, everything we write about the influence of pressure groups. I mean, I remember someone in, in 2009 telling me uh, that, 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 that you couldn't think of anything, uh, really, that, that they'd come up with uh, where, where pressure groups... I remember just teaching so much about pressure groups and the power of pressure groups. Uh, so little influence. Uh, I'm sure you want to talk about that. I mean, it's slightly provocative there. To make matters worse... Um, there was little in the coffers to fund a revived uh, policy agenda. Brown's unhappy inheritance can be compared to that of Callaghan's in 76, when uh, Harold Wilson uh, left in the midst of a worsening economic uh, crisis and with his majority dwindling to zero. You remember Harold Wilson said he was uh, leaving to make way for an older man. Uh, and John Major, uh, who came in, who uh, succeeded Margaret Thatcher, uh, and uh, when, uh, uh, again, a very difficult in inheritance. Now compare uh, Brown, what Brown had with um, the leadership, uh, the, the, the party divided all those factors with uh, about to be hit by by, by the political crisis of expenses, the economic and financial crisis, the military crisis in Afghanistan. Uh, compare that to what Blair had in May 1997. What did, what did Blair have? He had a united party, a landslide victory, an enfeebled opposition, a strong economy, a sympathetic media and intellectual climate. Uh, historians will have to take stock of how fortunate Blair was and how unhappy Brown's was in their inheritances. So I think that's one factor that, that genuinely explains why uh, more was not achieved. Second is deficient leadership qualities, leadership qualities. You know, what does a leader do? I mean, a leader, the difference between a leader and a manager is a leader has a clear vision. Uh, this is what leaders do. Um, actually, correction, this is what leaders should do. It's often what leaders don't do. Uh, and a vision about saying we are here now and we're going to go there. It doesn't matter whether you're running uh, the LSE or whether you're running a department within LSE or whether you are running a company or whether you're running a government. You have to have a clear sense of where you are going. And that was uh, where uh, 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 Brown was uh, deficient. If you listen to his vision, listen to his, I don't know if anyone's heard his TED talk, Google his Ted Brown's TED Talk, 22 July 2009, full of vision, extraordinary, on the international stage. There is Congress speech on 4th of March 2009, powerful, moving speeches, unless you are um, very cynical, uh, which I'm not. Um, 
Uh, I, the extraordinary power he's got in those. But you know, these are about a vision of, of, a, of a more civilized world, a, a fairer world. Plenty of visions, but not a vision for a domestic policy government. Uh, and it wasn't just his strategic vision that was lacking, it was also his tactical vision. He lacked the basic skills that leaders have to have of building a team. He was not a good chairman of cabinet or of the many committees. He would often turn up late, he wouldn't read the papers, he was clearly bored. Uh, despite having been a cabinet minister for 10 years, uh, he had little instinctive sympathy for the job of cabinet ministers. He made it very obvious he didn't particularly like them, didn't want to spend time with them. Uh, within the first weeks, it was obvious he didn't want to spend time. He had little time for his home secretary, little time even for his chancellor, little time for his foreign secretary. The people he wanted to spend time with was Ed Balls, Ed Miliband, Douglas Alexander his cronies. Not good. You cannot run an organisation unless you're going to value uh, 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 those people who are required to do uh, the work. Um, he was uh, poor also in his lack of imagination in, in picking the team inside number 10. He was poor in his process. He bypassed structured decision making. He wanted to work through informal channels. He uh, would have been bitterly exposed if it hadn't been, in particular, for two very distinguished, uh, three very distinguished, actually, um, uh, uh, civil servants, uh, and they were Jeremy Hayward, the most uh, impressive, uh, powerful civil servant in Britain since Norman Brooke, um, uh, from, who was head of the civil service from 1947 to 62. I think that's off the top of my head, but I think that's right. Uh, extraordinary person, Jeremy Hayward. James Bowler, who also came out of the Treasury, where he'd been his principal private secretary. Uh, and a man called Tom Fletcher, who was his foreign affairs uh, private secretary, akin to Charles Pohl under Thatcher. Because you know, this man had, uh, had, had no uh, ability, no discipline at, uh, at taking decisions. He would uh, prevaricate over decisions. He would only take decisions when it got to an absolute crisis moment. He would also make these tactical disasters, like over uh, abandoning uh, the, the, the decision to hold an election in the autumn of 2007, which, by the way, he would have won, or, for, or for example, the 10p debacle, or the 42 days uh, for the uh, retention of terrorist suspects. Uh, th th this was tactical uh, decision-making of the very worst. What he didn't seem to be capable of was, was making uh, sound tactical decisions. He would also uh, endlessly antagonise people by asking somebody over there, somebody over there, and somebody over there for advice. And they'd give him three bits of advice, uh, and, and he, he would then, you know, he'd make all of them think that he was taking their advice. They'd all get disenchanted with him. No one knew what was going on. I mean, it really skills. I mean, if Gordon Brown was running, uh, a corner sweet shop, the, 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 it wouldn't last. Um, I, 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 and I mean it was that, it was, uh, that bad. So, um, deficiencies of character uh, are a third reason. So the first one was his bad inheritance. Secondly, deficiencies of leadership. Third, leadership, uh, uh, character deficiencies. He was very uh, emotionally unstable. He was very lacking in self-confidence. He was very lacking in intellectual confidence. It meant that he was extraordinarily dependent upon the advice of those people who were more intellectually secure, uh, like, for example, Shruti Vadira, uh, like, for example, Ed Balls, like, for example, uh, 
when he came in uh, from September 2008, Peter Mandelson, even when they were wrong, uh, they had a sense of, of, of confidence. He was a highly defended leader. He would be uh, cliquey. Uh, he would blame other people when things went wrong. He was very mistrustful of others. Margaret Thatcher, we hear a lot about uh, Margaret Thatcher and, and the one of us culture, brilliant book by Hugo Young, which was published, I think, in 1987, but it might have been uh, a year or two later. Uh, was it 1989? The Guardian journalist now uh, no more. One of us applies far more to, 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 to Gordon Brown, that whole uh, mentality, but less around an ideological purity, more around uh, a leader purity. Are these people absolutely uh, for us? He would, uh, uh, when things went against him, as for example, uh, coming back from um, a, a disastrous trip. Uh, there were a number of those, by the way. Uh, this one was to Pakistan. Uh, in uh, April uh, 2009, uh, he, uh, flying up to uh, Poland, to Warsaw, where he went first, uh, he, he, he completely lost it. Uh, he had been led to believe that uh, he was going to come up with a proposal for working with, in a special uh, council with Pakistan, working together um, and provide real leadership against the Americans and, and a real wedge uh, going into Afghanistan. That uh, failed. He completely uh, lost it. And when he did, you know, there were all the things that uh, um, actually, no, not all the things uh, which we know about because they're quite disproportionate, the things we knew about. But he would scream at people, a lot of F words, a lot of um, uh, sulking, sometimes throwing objects, but never objects at people. Uh, he, he was like a child. He would simply lose his self-possession. And then when he came to himself, he would be like Anthony Eden was. He, he would grovel. He'd be embarrassing in his uh, apology. To, this to me is not worthy, well, it's worthy maybe of pity, but it's not worthy of contempt. When he made these mistakes, when he, uh, when he so, so touching in a way, uh, when he, remember the Jackie Jane's episode, uh, when he wrote, uh, the, the, the miswrote the name uh, and it looked like James. That, that night, as soon as he was told, the sun phoned up and said it was going to be in the paper the next day. Um, and he immediately, uh, he was up in the flat, he phoned down, he said, get the letter, because you take a photocopy at number 10 of the letters that he handwrites. He handwrites in his very thick, um, uh, you may have seen his handwriting felt tip pen because of his problems with his eyesight, uh, and he, which he finds very difficult. And he kept, kept trying to uh, convince himself, you know, turning over, he took the letter in his hand, the photocopy of it, and kept turning it over like, you know, like this uh, and trying to convince himself he really had written James, uh, 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 James uh, rather than James. The next day he flew to uh, Berlin for the 50th anniversary of the, sorry, 20th anniversary of the coming down of the Berlin uh, Wall, and on the flight on the way back, he, he spent the whole flight writing on sheets of A4 the word uh, over and over again, convincing himself that he really had made the mistake. When he makes these mistakes, he immediately wants to speak to the person. So he immediately wanted to get on the phone to the mother to apologise to her. Uh, and uh, cynically, the, the son had then uh, uh, fixed her up and, and recorded the phone call. Uh, and, and the sense that he was always, you know, when he realised he'd made a mistake, he would want to, to be a, to apologetic. You know, admirable in some ways, maybe not so admirable in the context of a uh, prime minister. And his insecurity led him, uh, which I do ask me questions about, to um, rely on a group of people who were frankly 
frankly unsavoury, uh, and I think that they were unfitting uh, to uh, be uh, in such high positions in number 10, and he disappointed so many people because he said, right, now I'm going to come into number 10, this is the highest office in the country, I'm going to lead this country in a much more moral way than the rather tribal, uh, brutal, old labour machine politics kind of way that I, I conducted affairs sometimes in the Treasury, and re repeatedly he made these pledges and repeatedly he uh, let people down. The story, interestingly, of the Brown Premiership is that he, uh, bit by bit, he let go of these people, like Damien McBride, uh, even Ed Balls, he moved away from uh, increasingly Charlie Whelan, he had to distance himself from, uh, and, and there was a new cadre of people who came in, names are barely known, um, uh, Kirsty McNeil, David Muir, Nick Pierce, Stuart Wood, who he relied on, who were fundamentally decent people who were much more concerned to get the best out of him and try to um, help him get his agenda across rather than see everything in this very mistrusting, paranoid kind of way. I'm going to take four and five uh, very quickly. I think the legacy actually probably made that point. Uh, the legacy was um, uh, hard for him. Philip Ziegler, in his most interesting book, uh, Official Biography of Ted Heath, published earlier this year, describes how, um, how uh, uh, Ted Heath underwent a similar transformation to uh, Gordon Brown. Ted Heath changed from a jovial, companionable younger politician to someone who became very suspicious and tri tribal. Uh, and on Blair, those years of disappointment, uh, not getting the crown that he thought he deserved to have in 1994. He thought that he was intellectually superior to Blair. He thought that he was superior in terms of his understanding of the Labour Party. He thought he was superior in terms of his, uh, just his, uh, his intelligence, uh, uh, his sense of what was required. And in the first term, uh, the, the, the domestic policy uh, achievements were substantially uh, Brown's. It was deeply galling for him. And then uh, he loses Jennifer, his, his daughter, uh, a very um, uh, powerfully distressing uh, uh, period in his life, and then his second son has cystic fibrosis. He has a lot of hardship to, to, to cope with. I was speaking just today to, I used to speak to a therapist called Anthony Storr, uh, who was a wonderful Jungian, about prime ministers. He's sadly no more, but I was speaking to somebody else, trying to understand th this man. I don't think that he was uh, uh, depressed. Uh, I think that Andrew Marr, uh, who tried to say that he was uh, on antidepressants, I don't think he was on antidepressants. I have, I think, fairly compelling uh, evidence suggesting he, that he wasn't on antidepressants. I don't think also that he was, as some people have said in public, uh, aspergic uh, or autistic. Uh, I think that he, he exhibited some of the symptoms of um, uh, some of the symptoms exhibited by people who have paranoia, uh, some of the symptoms exhibited by people who have depression. I think he was periodically uh, not long-term depressed, but events got him down. He was so much of a confidence figure. When things went down, he went down. He found it hard to get himself up when, when he knew that people were contemptuous of him. Uh, and uh, he also exhibited uh, definitely symptoms of somebody who was emotionally very insecure, quite intellectually insecure, interestingly, too. I think the final reason why he didn't achieve more was the lack of clarity. Uh, you, you need to have clarity about what you're trying to do if you're going to try and achieve it. Uh, I, I, and it was constantly this enormous puzzle to people who, who came into number 10 uh, on the 27th of June, just finishing, uh, 2007, uh, uh, that, he didn't, uh, that he didn't have uh, a, clear, a clearly worked out framework uh, of policies. The cupboard was virtually uh, uh, bare. Um, and so, so, so what have we got? We've got um, an, a, a thoughtful, 
uh, a profoundly uh, feeling uh, individual wanting to do great good at home and abroad, could articulate it quite well on the international stage, not domestically, five factors explaining why he didn't achieve more, but he has still achieved nevertheless more than uh, many prime ministers have done who've had advantageous uh, track records. It was, I think, one of the most fascinating premierships, one of the most tragic premierships in modern British history, certainly one of the most turbulent and troubled of modern premierships, and one that I now look forward to learning an awful lot from you about, about how I can get my uh, thinking about him into a much better place. Thank you for listening so carefully. We have about 25 minutes for questions and answers. If you could uh, indicate clearly by putting your hand up, someone will bring a microphone to you. And I'll, I'll take one microphone. We only have one microphone. Okay, so wait patiently. Um, first. Hi. Um, you mentioned something about Blair's, no, sorry, Brown's. Uh, use of cronyism and the fact that it failed. Uh, his predecessor probably exemplified the use of cronyism. Um, why did it work for one man and not for the other? Shall I take a few questions and then oh, put your okay. answer together? Ch uh, whatever, Paul, you want to... Ch well, maybe I'll take them in threes, okay? Okay, absolutely at the very back, and then... Um, you argued or you forgave Brown something of uh, the lack of success because of the inheritance he had, but isn't it true that he himself was responsible for a lot of that inheritance? Uh, two things in particular. First, I think it's probably true that I know around half the deficit that he had to reduce, that now has to be reduced, uh, was built up before the credit crisis. I think that's probably the view of the Treasury now. And second, you referred to the divisions in the Labour Party. Um, it's surely the case that he bears a large responsibility for those as well. So then the inheritance was not independent of him in the same way that it was for Blair. Okay, one, one question just at the front here, and then we lead off with those. Uh, two short questions. Number one, why do you think the press was so hostile to Brown? And two, considering uh, the, the, the press and the economy, why do you think the Conservative Party didn't win outright in the elections? Thank you. Can you repeat that, that second part of the question again? Oh, uh, considering the hostile press and the economy, so why do you think the Conservative Party did not win the election outright, which you would have thought they would in the conditions? Okay. Um, yeah, great questions, and, and let me know. I, it's hard to know how long to, to give these questions. The, the you know, what we could talk, we could talk for a great deal about all, all of them, a long time. Cronyism. Did it work for, for Blair? I, I, I would think that it it didn't work so well for Blair. That that uh, having people around him uh, who had. Uh, succeeded in transforming the Labour Party, and, and that's that tight uh, group of Jonathan Powell and um, 
uh, Alistair Campbell and Peter Mandelson and Philip Gould and Angie Hunter, and then bringing them into number 10 actually made him uh, much more defensive uh, and defended and not open to new ideas. Who was the first person who, um, having had that announcement of the leadership election on 20th or was it 21st of July 1994, who was the first person who Tony Blair wanted to join his team? Not a, not a policy person, not a policy chief, but a, a, a media handler. Um, it was defensive from the very uh, beginning. Uh, and so, I mean, I just would question. I mean, it worked well in the sense that it got him three election victories, uh, but the cronyism also got him into Iraq, got him into, uh, I think, wholly unacceptable um, uh, degrading of the moral quality of government, uh, and I think it also got him into a position whereby he was not creative on policy. So... I'm not saying it worked so well for Blair. Why did uh, cronyism fail for uh, for Brown? Because you know these people were you know the the, the Nick Brown, Ian Austin, um, Tom Watson, uh, the MPs, and uh, uh, Charlie Whelan uh, and Ed Balls and um, Damien McBride uh, had a. Um, a, a, a philosophy which is which is you know, a, a development of the Campbells that the, the, the world's very untrusting uh, and you have to uh, it's full of people who are trying to do you down uh, for Campbell scarred by the experience as I suggested of Neil Kinnock and you've therefore got to you know sort them out in the kneecaps before they get you uh, and, and that same philosophy now that isn't becoming for a leader it's not a creative uh, policy for it's not an inspiring way of, of government and it makes uh, more enemies uh, I, I, and and what uh, you know brown never entirely had the security uh, to, to do without it uh, and it, what these people did was they, they whipped him up they whipped up his insecurity and proved that they needed him you know he did really come in in June 2007 and tried to lead uh, a, a purer form of government. He wanted to get back to having civil servants in charge of number 10 rather than political officers. Uh, um, uh, uh, and he wanted to, to have a clean government, an inclusive government. But like a recidivist, he just went back to these people. So I, I think it dragged him down morally. Uh, they didn't help him to think creatively. Uh, they would, it was all about tactics. It was all about narrow party advantage. Uh, it was a great shame. Uh, and he had far better quality people. And when, uh, following his visit to the mayor of uh, New York in, uh, in the spring of 2008, he saw the horseshoe in the mayor of New York's office, and he decided that was what he was going to have. Now, they dreaded the idea of having the horseshoe there in number 12, and that big open plan room just through the corridor through number 11 into number 12 and they were extremely nervous that they would get sucked down by Brown's mania but in fact they managed to drag him up far more often than they were dragged down by it and it brought him into a, a better and a more trusting and a more positive uh, place. Uh, it is extraordinary how much uh, of politics is around psychology and is around health uh, and is around also notions of optimism. Interesting that um, uh, Blair, sorry, Brown's uh, uh, most productive per periods are when Sarah, his uh, wife, managed to get rid of the Kit Kat bars and get rid of caffeine, 
uh, and even for a while he gave up drinking uh, and he had a personal trainer and uh, fruit, uh, uh, fruit slices appeared on his desk and he wrote on this child's book in, uh, uh, in February 2010 uh, and it was a book you know, for somebody, uh, a child, you know, about advice and the, and the advice that he gave was uh, if you're healthy, if you're physically healthy you can achieve anything uh, in life uh, and he, he got it then but he didn't get it enough. He should have been far more influenced by the whole optimism agenda uh, rather than the, the, these negative people. Right, I'm going to do the others very quickly. I'm totally right about inheritance. Deficit, responsible for that. He was responsible for divisions in the Labour Party. Some of those other things, like you know, 10 years in office, people are a bit fed up with it. This is the point about he was responsible for creating his own bad inheritance. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with that point. There are some other points, such as the Conservative Party was clearly in a much better shape in 2007 than it had been in 1997. That wasn't his fault. Uh, it wasn't uh, his fault that after 10 years in power, it's harder to take over a government than to take over when it's in its first flush. But I, I stand corrected on that, and thank you. Why was the press so hostile? I, 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 think, uh, I, I think because... Um, uh, they saw, you know, your cynical view about uh, James Murdoch, Rupert's son, uh, would be that uh, he saw that uh, Labour was going to lose and commercial, commercial interest dictated going over to uh, the Conservatives. Uh, and uh, making then trying to make certain that that decision was vindicated uh, by doing everything they could to muck up uh, Labour's chance of success. Uh, uh, the, 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 the male were always angry uh, with him, partly because of his role in getting rid of uh, Blair, as were key journalists in The Times. Uh, the Guardian, I think the disappointment was primarily around, as I suggested, the high promise that he gave early on. In his first speech, he deliberately chose not to be on education. He chose not to be on health. He chose to be, I think, on the 4th of July, 2007, on constitutional reform. Uh, that excited uh, the Guardian. Uh, and, and, but his, his, his apparent insincerity about delivering on that agenda, uh, and uh, then 42 days... Um, uh, uh, so, so I think it was, it was just uh, he, he disappointed a series of uh, journalists uh, uh, and the, extraordinarily the, the approach of Damien McBride was to um, befriend uh, the Telegraph, people like Andrew Porter, uh, uh, people on the Telegraph. These are the people who are invited to Chequers, not the Observer, not the Mirror, not the uh, Guardian, um, and to, to befriend them, really peculiar. And then when they tried to get them back in as the election approached, uh, it was too late. Uh, they thought, you know, uh, no way. So, I mean, that's my response on that. Uh, why did the Conservatives uh, not do better? Um, great question. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't have anything. I've got ideas on that, but no better. Than, I've got no inside thoughts about that. Um, you know, I think if, if, if Cameron had, you know, Clegg, if Cameron had actually been more uh, inspiring himself, um, that, that would have uh, helped. Um, he didn't capture the hearts and minds, did he? He wasn't Blair. Uh, he didn't succeed in making anybody's um, uh, heart beat more, more quickly. Uh, he didn't also have the quality of the team. I mean, formidably strong team. In, in, I mean, they were, they were not good at producing pol domestic policy, but formidably strong. People like Alistair Campbell uh, and Peter Mandelson, Philip Gould. I mean, really world class. By any country's standards, these people were quite extraordinary. And, you know, Andy Coulson... 
Yeah, okay. Uh, Steve Hilton. I mean, you know, they're, they're just, I mean, you know, they're just not, they're, they're just not there. I mean, those are just some thoughts. Questions? Um, two over there. John Strafford, could I just put the point to you on this last uh, uh, question that um, only once in the last hundred years has a government with a healthy majority uh, been replaced by, a, by the opposition with a healthy majority, so he's never on for Cameron to win. But the question that I'd like to put is, um, why do you think Brown uh, uh, embraced the alternative vote when there was no obvious advantage to the Labour Party, was it out of any sense of fairness in his DNA or not? Uh, thank you. Sorry, my question's about um, Ed Miliband and Ed Balls. Uh, given that they were both in his fairly defensive clique and they're now the sort of number one and number two in the Labour Party, and Ed Balls has come from a Gordon Brown-esque situation of being the senior partner, being usurped by the junior partner. Do you see a sort of Miliband-Balls years in the same way you had the Blair-Brown years? So is that question, how do I see their relationship developing now? Yeah, given, given what you know of them already. Okay, yeah. Okay. okay. And then there's a question Hi, I was wanting to know what you thought that uh, Blair and Brown's relationship with the civil service was and whether you thought that that was an advantage or a disadvantage. So, so their relationship with the civil service? Yeah, and whether that did them ill or good. And whether it helped them or not. Okay. Um, all right. Well, the first, I'll, I'll try and do these more, more quickly. Uh, and uh, do, do, Paul, just, just yeah. tell me if I'm you know, being too long. It's always difficult to know. I think he embraced the AV because, partly because of guilt uh, and will be the first factor, because he did, you know, he did come in on the constitutional reform agenda uh, back in 2007, uh, and then he let it go, would be the first one. Secondly, people were pressing him, uh, like Will Stevenson, uh, who is one of his three old friends, along with Murray Elder and Colin Curry, who did those books with him on courage. Um, uh, he and people in the policy unit wanted it. And thirdly, the polls were showing uh, that there could well be a hung parliament, and if it's going to be a hung parliament, he'd look a lot stronger if he'd come out for AV. It's really interesting in history, you know, we never quite know why anybody does anything, you know, do we? I mean, do we know, any, do we know why we do anything? And yet we somehow think that, I don't, um, and um, so we somehow feel we've got to come in, with, but those seem to be in the right area. You know, Ed Miliband, Ed Balls, one of the things, I went into writing this book thinking that there was this really tight clique of Douglas Alexander. Ed Miliband, Ed Balls, and they were really tight together and they were uh, the young guard around uh, Brown. But Brown got very dispirited with all of them and very angry by the summer of 2009. He would say, you know, I have made these people, I have made their careers, and they have all abandoned me. He felt that they did not... Um, uh, that, that they sensed that the party was going to lose and they wanted to distance themselves. Uh, but so, so they were distant from Brown, but they were also distant from each other. Um, Ed Miliband went off to America. There's some very interesting stuff around, by the way, which is probably too... There's some very interesting stuff around, around whether Ed Miliband really did uh, oppose the Iraq war, but partly because he was in America at the time. And... Um, uh, 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 and he, he partly went because he needed to get away 
uh, Ed Balls was very, very strong. Think of the most powerful person you can think of in your lives, multiply that by a factor of several times and again, and you're getting close to Ed Balls. And uh, Ed Balls wanted power for himself. He wanted, I mean, he's intellectually brilliant. I, I mean, he's, he is a sans pareil in terms of brilliance, uh, but very deeply ambitious. And he, of course, pushed, Blair, pushed Brown to, to, to knock out Blair, uh, uh, and he also was jealous of the other two, and he did for Douglas Alexander over the election that never was in, in the autumn of 2007, if you remember that, when uh, there was a great deal about, you know, should Labour go early? They were 12 points ahead in the polls and, uh, and a lot of uh, uh, debate about that. And the two people who were briefed against by uh, Balls and uh, McBride were, um, uh, Ed, uh, were Douglas Alexander and a, another civil, sorry, an aide called Spencer Livermore. So uh, that was Douglas. So, so Douglas Alexander then fell out of, of, of them. Ed Miliband and uh, after... Is this on the record or is it not? It kind of is, isn't it? Well, forget everything I said. <laughs> forget everything I said in the last hour, please. Um, hmm. The, the, they didn't have... You know, when uh, David Miliband wrote that article in The Guardian in the summer of 2008... Um, some people said, of course, you can't trust Ed. They were saying to Gordon Brown, of course, you can't trust Ed Miliband. You know, the Miliband brothers, the Millers, they're very, very close, Gordon. Um, and uh, then there was a lot of... So, 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 so I, 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 they didn't get on very well, um, in some. Uh, and uh, so, 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 so I think what's going to happen now is that... Um, is that it's going to be extremely interesting because Ed Balls is streets ahead of others intellectually. Ed Miliband did quite well as a cabinet minister over climate change, not very well as minister in charge of the cabinet office. Gordon Brown wanted Ed Balls to run the cabinet office to be his enforcer. Ed Balls said, no, I'm not going to do that for you. Uh, Ed Balls wanted to be Chancellor. It was too difficult, particularly with the Blairites to have brought... I mean, you know, I mean, you know what the Blairites thought of Ed Balls. The idea that he would come in and make Ed Balls his Chancellor is his first move. It's just unreal. Uh, so um, Ed Balls instead, at the last minute, uh, went off to uh, education and was then a bit shocked to find that Andrew Donis had already been um, earmarked for that job. Uh, and Ed Miliband picked up the short straw and went off to the Cabinet Office with the idea that he would bring cohesion. He didn't do that very well, wasn't happy doing it, not his forte, no cohesion. So, 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 so I, I mean, it, they're, they're not friends. So what will happen will be a question of, of where they each view their political advantage best to lie. Uh, but don't imagine that there is love there or friendship. That was a mistake I made before I got into this book. And finally, uh, civil, civil servants, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, I think it's fair to say that neither of them used the civil service uh, very well. Uh, both were very suspicious of it. Uh, Tony Blair, a complete contempt for history, really, a sense that everything began when he took over the Labour Party in 1994. He became Prime Minister in 97. Civil servants um, uh, were slow, unimaginative. Uh, he brought in this very strong controlling centre 
with Michael Barber to get delivery uh, insisted on to, 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 to be forced through. Uh, didn't work closely with his heads of the civil service, with uh, initially uh, Robin Butler, then uh, high excitement about Richard Wilson coming in. It was going to be work extraordinarily well, but actually uh, it didn't. And then Andrew Turnbull, they went very close. Miles away from the kind of relationship, you know, that uh, that um, uh, Harold Wilson had with Burke Trend or uh, Ackley had with Edward Bridges or uh, Macmillan had with Norman Brooke, you know, where they were immensely close. Uh, he didn't need them. Uh, and so, uh, and Gordon Brown is uh, very emotional and very, um, very uh, close to the civil servants he likes and trusts. Uh, but it is this uh, um, one of us, and, and you know, if he wasn't going to uh, spend time befriending his cabinet, uh, and it, by the autumn of 2007, there was this idea, there was a sense that he really wasn't getting well with his cabinet. So one of his um, uh, one of his office said, "All right, uh, Gordon, we're going to have a series of uh, of supper parties on Monday evening where you're going to get to know your cabinet and be nice to them." Uh, but he complained so strongly about uh, about uh, turning up uh, to this um, uh, that in the end he just wouldn't turn up, um, and it was rather like trying to persuade him to. Uh, to, to turn up to, to meetings and meeting foreign dignitaries. Am I allowed to use an F word here? Yes. Um, he said that's foolish. Um, <laughs> and, no, he, he, no, before, he, he repeatedly would say before seeing foreign dignitaries, why the F are you making me see these people? He, you know, he, he, was not, he, he was not the kind of agreeable person who thought, I'm going to bring the best out of everybody, I'm going to get everyone together, I'm going to be very positive. It, it was a, a sense immediately of a tight group uh, in a hostile world. Uh, I think neither men... Uh, to their, uh, to, to their, to their uh, to, to, which resulted in their poor performance, I think, to the shame of others. Uh, I think both men downgraded the value of the civil service and the civil service as a career and failed to get the best out of them. Pity. I want three, three last questions, so if you could keep them brief. Uh, the gentleman at the top, if you could shout loudly so we can... Isn't a major part Interesting. When you said uh, shouting loudly, I thought we were going to have a demonstration of sort of Gordon Brown there at his. Um... So, so did I. Yeah. No, no, thank you. Thank you for not doing that. Uh, gentleman in the middle. Here. You, you say, uh, Dr. Selden, that uh, uh, Brown was not intellectually secure. Um, you then say that uh, he yet he thought he was intellectually superior to Blair. Mm. I had a vague impression, certainly before he became PM, that he was something of an intellectual. He was certainly very well academically qualified. How do you rate him as an intellectual? Oh, that's so difficult. Um, that's so difficult. And the very, yeah. very last question, just on the front here. Keep it brief, thanks. Uh, yeah, um, I'd like to ask why you think he brought back uh, Peter Mandelson, 
given that there was a lot of enmity between them. Yeah, so the question there was, why brought back Peter Mandelson? Oh, wow, they're such good questions. Uh, and I'm going to just do my best quickly. Uh, Two Scottish uh, question, um, you know, like Mrs. Thatcher with uh, Lincoln to Grantham and, uh, and so on. Uh, yeah, he was, wasn't he? And he, and sometimes his, his views, uh, such as of the health service, were fundamentally a view of the Scottish health service without him ever realising it. Uh, and I think he was profoundly affected by Scotland. He felt you know, always at home. He was a different person. He was more trusting uh, when he was in Scotland. And yet in his premiership, because he was imbued with this notion that you can't come over as Scottish, he distanced himself. He constantly uh, was anxious not to appear to be Scottish. Uh, to, appear, to appear to be initially it was father of the nation if you remember during the floods and foot and mouth and terrorist uh, 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 uprisings so uh, I think that's a most interesting thought, I'm going to think about that more, the extent to which uh, his perception, we're all victims aren't we of our own upbringing um, and our own experience uh, and set, set that against his early experience, his loss of his sight in the eye uh, and his experience of Scottish politics, and it was that um, you know, to what extent was that formative? I'm going to need to think more about that. What is interesting to me is that his conscious decision to distance himself uh, from Scottishness, even in those areas where clearly his perception of, of British uh, uh, domestic policy was informed by it. How do I rate him as an intellectual? You know, he loved uh, talking to. He loved talking to. to uh, intellectual Stiglitz, Krugman, Skidelsky in this country. I had a most interesting correspondence with, uh, with Robert Skidelsky, Keynes's uh, uh, biographer. Uh, 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 and you know, you've got to be wary because, in the same way that you know, people would say of Blair, you know, he, he read the Quran several times, forwards, backwards, upside down, always takes it with him. Um, you know, and I don't see the evidence of that um, and people would say you know Brown he would take you know a book a day but he, he was he loved books and, and he, he would as Christmas approached he'd get on he was forever uh, on his screen he'd get onto Amazon and he'd very carefully select books for uh, all his uh, all his staff so so uh, a lot of them got uh, for Christmas last year they got Robert Skidelsky's uh, Return of the Master um, you know he would take great care uh, uh, he, he loved uh, you, know, you know he was as bored with his cabinet because uh, frankly they well, I know it's not fair to say they were boring, but, but, but they were not very excited by ideas. I mean, it was a toss-up, I think, between being in a meeting of EU leaders and cabinet, which would be his least favourite way to spend an afternoon. Um, but being with intellectuals, uh, he, he loved. Uh, now, was he, um, uh, he, he... At the end of the day, he wasn't an economist. I, I, and I think his understanding, I mean, I think one reason he relied so heavily on people like uh, uh, Shruti Vadira was that you know, they had a depth of understanding of economics and why he relied on intellectuals. And, uh, and so, you know, at one stage he got very in, in, interested in FDR and, and he got Stuart Wood, who's one of his aides, to, to prepare this digest of, of what all the writers are, 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 are on. Uh, on FDR had said, particularly about his first hundred days, he loved ideas. Uh, he was enormously uh, 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 
deep thinking. He loved books. Uh, he loved talking about ideas. Does that make you an intellectual? And are you also asking how intelligent was he? I would think he was highly intelligent, and, and he was, for a prime minister, uh, pretty intellectual. I, I mean, you know, Mrs. Thatcher didn't read many books. You know, um, John Major read Trollope. Blair said that he read lots of books. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I, you know, but he did. Macmillan, I, you know. I'm going to think more about that one. Uh, and why did he bring back Peter Mandelson and with, with one minute to go? He brought back Peter Mandelson because he was very insecure and very embattled. He'd had a terrible uh, first part of 2008. He had, uh, he had the 10p episode. He was losing his, 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 his party. Uh, Jack Straw, Harriet Harman... Alan Johnson were all being put up. Charles Clark was stirring things up. He felt very worried and insecure. And, you know, he always loved Peter Mandelson. And part of his fury in 1994 was when Peter Mandelson sided with Blair. And they had this, it was like lovers. You know, it was like a lover's rejection. He was desperately angry. Now, now he was the main man, and, and he loved being able. So they started having these the, the, these conversations. He sent you know what, what, he, he sent a, an official and one of his aides across to Brussels, and and he phoned him up and he said on a Sunday afternoon he said, "Do you know Peter Mandelson?" And the aide said, uh, is, 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 "Is that an allegation?" Uh, and he said, and he, said and, he, and he sent him over uh, there an incredibly cloak and dagger. And they, they started this conversation uh, uh, going. Uh, and he loved having him. He also loved having Alistair Campbell back uh, uh, around him. And they were so much big. These were giant figures. Uh, the problem was that, that Mandelson propped him up in the 2009. And without him, when the James Pennell coup, uh, he would have gone without Mandelson propping him up. Didn't prop him up in the 2010 Hewn Hewitt coup. Uh, most interestingly, he absented himself. Uh, he just loved... You know, he loved Peter. He loved the, uh, the excitement uh, of being around him, uh, the sense of fun, the, 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 the dynamic of the conversation. So, and it was like you know, people said that, that it was so cathartic you know, when he was with him. He would smile. The smile came very deep, the sense of a Duchenne smile. Is that the right word? Duchenne smile. You know, a really sincere smile. It touched him very, very deeply when it worked well with Peter Manson. So it was a sense uh, of, of uh, healing a, a, a broken... Uh, damaged relationship, I guess. That's how I see it. Thanks. So, so to sum up, we have uh, an able and hard-working student, but one who hangs out with the wrong people um, and for whom there's room for improvement. I should, should have gone to LSE. Thank you very much, Andy, um, for a very interesting um, uh, taster of what we hope to see in the, in the book when it comes out in due course. Um, thank you all for coming tonight, and um, we hope to see you at uh, forthcoming uh, British Government at LSE um, in initiatives in future. So thank you again, and thank you, Anthony.